I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. We've been inundated with great suggestions after we had a listener write in last week asking for examples of male-female friendship in pop culture that isn't laced with underlying sexual tension and preferably also not a gay best friend stereotype. We've had loads of suggestions. Thanks, guys. You've done much better than us. Mark emailed in to say that he first thought of Betty and Daniel from Ugly Betty. Ah. And he notes the premise is that they're thrust together when Daniel, as sort of heir to this magazine empire, needs an assistant who he's not going to sleep with. So obviously there is that slight sexual premise at the beginning. But, you know... They obviously develop this quite touching friendship, which Mark calls a solid and simple friendship built on mutual affection, respect and dependency. They quickly subvert the archetypal relationship between a rich young man and his young woman assistant and find in each other what their chaotic lives previously lacked. Genuine, caring, life-affirming friendship, which is, wow lovely (laughs) yeah that's really nice so we've also heard from dave who very short email he recommends daisy and tim in the 90s surreal comedy spaced that is a good one which is a really good shout he also says hopefully only one of you knows this sitcom masterpiece so that you can recommend it to the other (laughs) i'm sorry to say that we've both seen it and we both really like it but that doesn't mean we won't talk about it at some point yeah if you don't know it it's a yeah 90s british sitcom about two roommates played by simon Pegg and jessica hines again a bit like the ugly betty example there is a slight romantic tinge in the sense that they have to pretend to be a couple in order to get the lease on the flat they want to live in yeah because it's a couples only sort of renting situation but the joke is that they are not and are never going to be a couple (laughs) it's really playful and lovely that one i really because there's a lot of silliness in their friendship which sometimes can be seen as a male only friendship thing but they they do go along with each other's jokes and games in a really good way and he's emailed in to suggest maggie and andy from extras which is a really good one as well they sort of have these fun questions questions that they ask each other about like what animal would you rather be and that kind of thing. Charlie has actually put two examples in this email, one of which I'm very ashamed that I didn't think of. They say I think the TV show New Girl has wonderful examples of this and I guess that's true actually. Have you seen any of New Girl? Yeah I actually really like New Girl. Yeah I do too so I guess like Winston and Jess for instance is a really good example but this is the one I'm ashamed I didn't think of. The show 30 Rock has wonderful non-sexual relationships. Of course. Of course it does. Liz (laughs) Lemon and Jack Donaghy. 30 Rock is one of my core TV shows. One of your 
absolute favourites, isn't it? absolute faves. And yeah, I can't believe I didn't think of that. And incidentally, I find it really funny with 30 Rock that if you go back through YouTube and watch archive interviews with Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin, which I do sometimes from like 2006 or something, <laughs> the question all interviewers ask them is like, when are Liz and Jack going to get together? And they're like, never, never, obviously not. <laughs> They get asked that every single year that they're promoting the show, which is really funny. We've also had some good non-Western suggestions from Anthony, who says he struggled to think of any Western media in which male-female friendships are more than just tangential. Um, But he has said that two examples did come to mind through Japanese pop culture, Steins Gate and something called Metal Gear Solid 3 colon Snake Eater. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say I'm familiar with either of those, but those are great titles. Exactly. He says that Japan has a complicated relationship with gender in that although sometimes aspects of pop culture can be more sexist and objectifying, in some ways sort of character development and relationships can be more developed mm. than in Western cliches. So Stein's Gate is something that he calls a visual novel, but apparently it's on Netflix, and Metal Gear Solid is a video game, so you can check those out. And now on a different subject, we've had an email from Bridget seeking our help and also the help of our listeners. And she says, so she and her sister are kind of in a long distance sibling relationship right now her sister's in the states and she Bridget is in Berlin and her sister is you know she's just graduated and she's kind of in that point in her life where she's freaking out about having to figure out what she's going to do next all of life that is all of life as you're going to discover Bridget's sister but you know whatever Bridget is doing this really nice thing where she's trying to make her a kind of movie playlist that's relevant to the decisions that she's having to make and she's really struggling to think of things to put on it Mm. and said her criteria has been recent graduate early 20 somethings figuring things out Bechtel test passing and ideally not completely heteronormative she says she also has this fantasy of finding a movie about long distance sisters that isn't about estrangement but that's maybe a listener dilemma for another time Mm. the list she's got so far is kicking and screaming reality bites and francis ha Mm. which are all good ones so she asks can we think of anything else or can our listeners think of anything else i also thought of reality bites which i actually think is a really bad film but one that i really enjoy it does also fit this criteria yeah absolutely massively and there's a fun element to the backstory of reality bites as well that i suggest everyone check out which is that so reality bites is the name of the film within reality bites it's kind of film within a film situation but apparently the sort of behind the scenes scenario with the actual movie that we know reality bites was very similar to the process of like this person writing like a sort of edgy film and then it being like hijacked by corporate (laughs) machinery so that's quite interesting if you look into that but my suggestion would probably be tiny furniture which is the film that lena dunham did before she started making girls it stars her family mother and sister feature very prominently in it and it's obviously very clearly based off her own family to what extent it's completely autobiographical is obviously a different thing but they star in it and it's about sort of her finishing at college moving back in with her mum and really wanting to be a sort of creative person but like having absolutely no direction and not really knowing what she's doing it's like girls like ramped up even more you understand it so much Mm. it's like very human and really nice my recommendation is slightly less to the brief I have to admit which is Coyote Ugly it's about a young woman who wants to be a songwriter moving to the city and she ends up working in this bar with all these other women where they do sort of performances on the bar every night and they have like fans who come to the bar and it's just about exactly this of her trying to figure out the way to pursue her dream Mm. and whether she has to kind of give up her integrity to do so and also at the same time like figuring out how to live on her own for the first time and stuff like that yeah so yeah but anyway we will throw this open to the listeners 
They're always better than us. They're always better at this than we are. If you have any suggestions for Bridget or any comments on this topic, let us know on seriouslypod at gmail.com or via Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr. Just search for Seriously Pod. Yeah, ladies, keep emailing in. Yeah. A lot of men emailing in. The first thing we're going to talk about this week is The Argonauts, which is a genre-bending memoir by Maggie Nelson about her relationship with her partner, the gender-fluid artist Harry Dodge, her stepson, and her pregnancy and the birth of her first child. But the book refuses to be pinned down by real-life events, incorporating thoughts on the nature of art, motherhood, gender, sexuality, and love. Quite hard to summarise this book, isn't it? Because it feels very fluid. It is. I did not like it for the first 50 pages. Uh-huh. I really didn't like it. Right. I found the style of it really annoying. I found the way she skipped between lots of different topics really annoying. Mm. I found her, the bits of memoir that she kind of put in it, I found it kind of alternately twee and overcomplicated. Mm. And it was just making me furious. And then I reached this kind of turning point around page 50, where I was like, oh no, actually, this is amazing. Oh, great. It's really strange. And I actually wanted to read the bit at which this happened. Yeah, do you have the turning point? I do. So the turning point was her talking about Judith Butler. Oh, I think I remember this bit. And saying about how... So just to very badly summarise, Judith Butler's kind of groundbreaking bit of feminist theory was about how what she called the commodification of identity. The idea that identities were something you could kind of put on or take off or perform or not. Mm -hmm. And Maggie Nelson is talking about the backlash against Judith Butler. And she's saying, I'd say that the simple fact that she, Butler, is a lesbian is so blinding for some that whatever words come out of her mouth, whatever words come out of the lesbian's mouth, whatever ideas spout from her head, certain listeners only hear one thing lesbian 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 it's a quick step from there to discounting the lesbian or for that matter anyone who refuses to slip quietly into a post-racial future that resembles all too closely the racist past and present as identitarian whether it's actually the listener who cannot get beyond the identity that he has imparted to the speaker mm. is very something i see all the time these mm-hmm. days i read this really chimed with me then she says calling the speaker identitarian then serves as an efficient excuse not to listen to her in which case the listener can resume his role as speaker mm-hmm. exactly which that just so chimed with me still in all kinds of discourse and situations who is speaking overrides what they're saying absolutely at all times totally agreed with what she said there and then also i started to see that the reason she was writing in this style that i had so disliked was to try and overcome this problem Mm -hmm. to try and make herself and her kind of characters so fluid that you couldn't pin them down to any one thing and therefore you actually tried to get at the sense of what she was saying rather than how or who was saying it. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think it's really interesting that you've chosen as your sort of turning point one of the rare moments in the book where she becomes very strident Mm. because Nelson's voice a lot of the time I feel is fairly sort of nuanced and sometimes it can be a little bit hesitant which she writes about a little bit in the book and that's one of the rare moments she goes into a sort of criticism of like Zizek and uh, and thinkers like that with uh, real bite in a way that sometimes she's a little more um, self-censoring in some of the rest of the book. And kind of self-effacing sometimes as well. One of the things that initially frustrated me about the book, I don't know what you thought about this, is the way that each paragraph is almost a separate idea. Mm-hmm. they don't necessarily develop immediately so you yeah. get sort of like 150 words about something and then you're into the next thing and she'll come back to that but not for like 10 pages or something and that sort of annoyed me initially this kind of scattergun approach well, as in you writing. felt like frustrated because you'd be like wait you had a thought there yeah, and it's gone. exactly or that's totally a thought that i want you to develop more 
And now we're just talking about something else. Mm-hmm. I became introduced to Maggie Nelson by reading Bluets. Have you read Bluets? No. It's in these sort of short paragraphs in a similar way to The Argonauts, but, but it starts with number one. It's like maybe about 200 pages and there's like 260 numbered paragraphs in it. And they all are fairly separate, but you realise as you go along, there's this sort of rhythm and flow to it, a bit like waves. Her paragraphs will be almost like complete little theses, but then they've all been chopped up and stuck to recut and pasted like a David Bowie lyric or something. Mm. So you'll start with like a paragraph about the sea and then the next paragraph is about a mother and then the next one might go back to the sea and the next one might go back to the mother or something like that. But it becomes a lot more complicated as you go on. And I really like that because for me, some of the best things that I like about writing, which I always read in someone like Ali Smith, who we both love, is Mm. when you get this sense of like everything being interrelated. And sometimes it takes a long time for those moments to come in Maggie Nelson because she will be so all over the place. But then when they do, I find it so satisfying when you're like, actually, all this stuff seems separate, but really it's related by something larger and vague and slippery. Yeah, I think I've I've really liked that in fiction Mm. in the past. And I think this is the first time I've found it less than frustrating in nonfiction. Yeah. Because this is nonfiction, you know, it's a kind of blend of criticism and memoir, I suppose, is the easiest way of trying to sum it up. I think probably normally in my nonfiction, I look for something with a more apparent through line Mm. earlier on, Mm -hmm. which she does have, but it is developed in the way you say, in this kind of slightly in the background kind of way. And actually, I think because I I read this book while I was on holiday in New York last week, and I happened to be talking to the friend I was staying with a lot about Cloud Atlas, the David Mitchell Mm -hmm. novel, and also the movie of it. So in the novel Cloud Atlas, there are seven interlinked stories. You get half the story and then half the next story and half the next story almost like a Russian doll and then you go back out Mm. the other way Mm. in the movie it's not like that it's kind of you get like a 30 second scene of one story and then a 10 minute scene of another one and then 30 seconds and then five minutes and it's all kind of cut up and intermingled to really emphasize that point that everything is interrelated it was the Wachowskis who made it apparently the way they made the film was they wrote all the scenes they wanted to do on like flashcards and then threw them all on the floor and then picked them up in a random order and then started working from there yeah because they consciously didn't want to plan it Mm -hmm. they wanted it to just happen and have the story kind of arise out of the chaos yeah that's really interesting because i think the argonauts feels more planned than that oh it is clearly very planned but obviously formally it reflects what it's about quite a lot which is the idea of like how much is a thing made up of its constituent Mm. parts or a person or you know a concept and how much are those things sort of innate and unchanging no matter what you know comes off and goes back on and that kind of thing so it's really interesting i felt something i'm quite ashamed of in reading this was an overwhelming sense of envy because mm. I found her writing so good and I love writing that is sort of magpie-like like that. It's sort of why I love, I loved Harvey Gevinson's writing so much and Hilton Owls and people like that is when people can, like a, you know, I hate to use the phrase culture vulture because it's so annoying, but like when you like see lots of different bits from different novels and films and theory and stuff that you like and you just like pick at them like a magpie and put them all together. I always think that that relies on a really like cool intellectual way of making connections, which I think is really interesting. And she was so good at it and I was just like oh I feel so much envy for you and you're like cool life yeah and you're like, oh, she's very cool yeah <laughs> that that is that if I had a point of dislike that remained it was the fact that I felt at times she approaches cool girl status really yeah because I feel like a lot of it is sort of the opposite of that a lot of this stuff is happening not in the time of writing yeah, but 10 course, years yeah. ago 15 years ago 
So I can imagine that there was a sort of probably like a lot of confusion and not shame, but like a lot of difficulty surrounding the way her family was set up. But maybe it's just hit the right moment with its publication. And I think it feels... that's I think that's true actually. I really liked the parallel of her pregnancy and her partner's transitioning. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting, like putting the two kind of changing bodies alongside each other and have them interact and stuff. Yeah, because was... basically at the same time as she gets pregnant, her partner Harry decides to have top surgery, and Harry is assigned female at birth. Mm. And there's quite an interesting bit in there where he says he's not trying to get anywhere, so he yeah. doesn't see himself as trans in that sense of like I was assigned female and now I am on my journey to becoming a man in the same way as I feel a man inside. It's just, I want to do this surgery for now and that's something that I'm going to do and I prefer myself when I'm on testosterone and that's something I'm going to do. But yeah, so it does mean that their bodies are sort of in parallel going through these crazy, both hormonal and physical Mm. changes, which, yeah, is a very interesting Yeah, his presence in the book is mostly, she quotes him sometimes, Mm -hmm. but also she kind of imagines him at other times times and then she a lot of the time addresses him using the second person she says you did this you yeah. took me there you mm-hmm. made me feel like this which is a really interesting way of having a secondary presence in a first person piece of writing mm-hmm. and i know it's something that gets done badly a lot in the world of fan fiction second person fic is kind of notorious as yeah. being like a mark of maybe not the greatest quality although obviously not always because i think it's just very difficult to do as Definitely. a technique but yeah i did find him compelling i wanted to know more of him i was kind of reaching always trying to reach through what she was saying to find out more about him it's funny because the only other book that immediately jumps out to me with a great second person voice is a girl is a half form thing yeah. which is similarly about like discovering identity it's about sort of all these complicated familial relationships and how they change you and vice versa but i love this i think she's an amazing writer and yeah hopefully my envy will disappear so that i can just enjoy her (laughs) I am on a lonely road and I am traveling, 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 traveling Now we're going to talk about Jane the Virgin, which is a TV comedy drama that tells the story of a young woman, Jane, played by Gina Rodriguez, who, although she is a virgin, becomes pregnant after an accidental artificial insemination. It's loosely based on a Venezuelan telenovela, and in its format and style satirises various tropes that are common in that format. Mm-hmm. So we've got this really heightened register from the off, oh, which yes. is why you have to get behind things like someone could be accidentally artificially inseminated by their doctor who was having a bad day, who is also the sister of the man whose sperm it is, who is also someone that Jane knows and like actually really fancies and like kissed one time. And is sort, sort of the boss. He's and is also ho- the boss of where she works. Yeah. And yeah, it's like utterly ridiculous. Yes. But this is why, because it's like got these telenovela threads in it the whole way through. It's really funny. This reminds me very strongly of a friend of mine lived in Chile for a few years while she was studying there. And whenever she came home or whenever we spoke on Skype, she always used to tell me about this telenovela that everyone in her office was obsessed with. (laughs) And it sounds a lot like this. The fact that you just have to get on board with the fact that crazy shit happens and everyone looks inexplicably beautiful all the time. A character can go from like basically being dead one episode to then, you know, being king and married the next (laughs) one. Uh, So yeah, this is 
although I'm not overly familiar with that format, it sounds like it's bang on. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I thought that I would like have a problem with sort of the ridiculousness of it when I heard about the show. But actually, I don't at all. And then I find myself like picking at such random things while I was watching it. So I've watched just the, the first episode and I was like, you wouldn't really keep that flower on your wall for like <laughs> years. That's so ridiculous. Which is basically uh, Jane's grandmother gives her a flower. Look at the flower in your hand, Jane. Notice how perfect it is. Now, Miha, crumple it up. Really, Mom? Shh. But this is so lame. Mommy. Shh. Crumple up the flower, Jane. Good. Try to make it look new again. I can't. That's right. You can never go back. And that's what happens when you lose your virginity. You can never go back. And this supposedly is what makes Jane decide to be like a virgin until she's married and she's a religious child, etc, etc. And, you know, cut to present day and Jane's got this flower in a frame, like pinned to her wall. And it's like not even that dried. <laughs> yeah. The, the, it's just like sort of, it has kind of preserved despite everything. It's very weird. The and, flower is a kind of recurring motif because not only does she have it on her wall, there's another time when I think when she and her boyfriend, Michael, decide why not just have sex now? And they're kind of you know, leading up to it in a hotel room and then suddenly a petal falls from a flower in a vase on the table and she freaks out. Right, and like when she proposes, she has the flower in her hair, yeah. not on the wall, and he like brushes it out of her hair with his hand as if to be like, oh yeah, and like the virgin no more or whatever. But it's, it's all like, yeah, so that stuff, I was a bit like, mm, this is weird. And I also found myself picking at like stuff that always gets me in a sort of rom-com tropes rather than the ridiculousness of the telenovela tropes. So uh, I really don't like it when in rom-coms, someone's got a partner and they're thinking about leaving their partner for someone else or like just a crush comes along that they fancy. But, you know, they love their partner and then the way that is always resolved is like they discover their partner's cheating on them. And mm. it's such a like annoying shortcut because like actually in real life, their partner wouldn't be cheating on them probably. And they would have to like confront their uncomfortable feelings and like make a decision that was nuanced about it. So for example, there's sort of a, a slight suggestion that maybe as Jane fancies the guy who she's currently impregnated by that they're you know maybe they'll get together and of course within the first episode we realize that his wife is like a scheming gold digger who's cheating on him and just trying to get the 10 million out of her prenup agreement or something and it's just like "Mm, i don't know because it feels more like something that could happen in a normal rom-com i think that's why it annoys me more than the really overblown stuff yeah there's also quite a lot of that with her family so Jane doesn't know who her dad is and she's been raised by her mum and her grandma and she constantly finds out that they've kind of withheld things from her or not told her about stuff or this kind of thing and there's this constant arc of her like being furious with them and then realising actually that they only had her best interests at heart and kind of Mm. so she kind of bounces forward and back between the same ideas quite a lot and in some senses I find that repetition comforting because you know in the same way that I have enjoyed soap operas in the past like I don't want too many new ideas Mm. on my tv at the same time in another way the premise of this show is interesting and it has interesting characters but actually just making them do the same thing over and over again is less interesting yeah definitely well I haven't got that far but 
I'm excited to see where it will develop because I would like it if we didn't have a revelation at the end of the first season or something that Jane's fiancé is cheating on her and therefore she's allowed to just leave him and not have any problematic feelings about it. So I think I've watched seven episodes and it's, you know, it's like a long American TV series with I think 24 episodes and there's been two seasons. And at the moment, I don't have much sense of a kind of series arc. Well, I think it's always difficult in these programmes that are essentially based around a ticking time bomb. Yeah. So pregnancy narratives tend to be something that happens more on film. I think because you have nine months and then there's a baby at the end of it. So whatever decision is made, whether the person gets an abortion, gives the baby up for adoption, decides to become a single parent, gets married and has the child like that, you know, whatever happens, it has to happen within a fairly concrete timeline and you don't have loads of room for like shocking twists and stuff. So I don't know how it can, for example, progress into a second season. Where are we with Jane in the second season? And what happens next? Because presumably she must have the baby at the end of the first season it would be really weird if they spun it out over more than Mm. one but once she's had the baby then presumably we kind of move away from the original jane the virgin premise and then it's just a drama featuring those characters yeah exactly i think it's and i think maybe if we accept that then it's not a problem because obviously there's lots of interesting places you can go with new motherhood and things like that it's also funny that it's you know slightly tongue-in-cheekly called jane the virgin and basing itself around the premise of virginity because obviously in our very heteronormative ideals of what virginity is you quote lose it and then you don't go back so that's obviously jane the virgin will not be jane the virgin anymore in that sense so yeah it's very funny that they've chosen these quite specific and not very permanent states as the premise for their program because obviously they will change so in the first episode do you get any of the passions of santos the the telenovela within the yeah basically there's a moment where they're watching the telenovela as they're watching it mum like looks onto jane's face and jane is like what and she's like nothing and i was like "Mm, her dad's the actor on the tv show (laughs) (laughs) that's the kind of place that this program is gonna go with stuff like that it's just so funny but yeah it's really it's a really interesting way of them like watching the thing that they're also mocking in the writing of the show those bits have always become my favorite bits the internal telenovela is so ridiculous and so funny it actually reminds me of an episode of 30 rock in which there's also a telenovela within the show uh, which is called something like senor matrosolo or something like that (laughs) and the the joke is that the woman that alec baldwin is dating who's played by selma hayek she and her grandmother are really obsessed with this telenovela and there's a guy on it who looks exactly like alec baldwin's character who is played in real life by Alec Baldwin wearing a moustache and but he's evil in this telenovela so her grandma is like you cannot date him he is evil <laughs> that's really funny um, it's also a bit like the joy yes uh, the, the mother and joy watches a lot of these uh, telenovelas but the, I mean I'm saying this because these are my only real acquaintances with them because I haven't ever seen one yeah it's a very good use of the kind of show within a show both to tell you stuff about the characters in the outer show and also because it's it's a plot driver as you say like the man she finds out is her father is an actor on the telenovela so yeah i'm interested to see where it will go i think but at the moment it's sort of i think i find it funny not laugh out loud funny but like sort of oh this is very cute funny i think it's just important to like have a real sense of fun in in a program like this which they don't there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last episode, I recommended that Anna watch the documentary film 20 Feet from Stardom, which is about the backing singers for the rock and roll greats down the years. It explores this idea that these women have all had incredibly stellar careers, they're all very, very talented, but no one really knows who they are, but they made some of the most famous music in the world sound the way it does. There's a power to these women that stand on stage with these guys. It's a bit of a walk. That walk to the front is... This is complicated. I thought it was really interesting how they immediately backgrounded it in race and yeah. about how there had sort of been these very prim and proper white women backing singers singing for these very prim and proper white male stars. And then you had Darlene Love and the Blossoms really having a lot more fun with it, having far superior vocal ability, to be frank, and just sort of exploding this new sound onto the scene. And it's really interesting to watch throughout how black female talent is capitalised upon and sort of co-opted mm. and never really put at the front stage and like given. Although there obviously were other big black female bands that were hugely profitable at the time, like the Crystals, like the Supremes, you know. There's a part, I can't remember who says it, but one of the people interviewed on the show says that whenever her going solo was suggested, producers would say, like, well, we've already got an Aretha, we've already got a Diana Ross. Mm. It's like, what, what, we've what? got Tina, what can... Like, what could you bring? Like, you're just a black woman too. Like, there's no way you could be any different. They opened really well with Lou Reed, Take a Walk on the Wild Side. Yeah. And then there's a bit in that song where he says, let's hear those coloured girls or something, which obviously people na- find, like, very uncomfortable. But there's this backing singer saying, you know, like, yeah. I mean, that was how it was. Like, and then the coloured girls would come in and like change the sound of your record. And that was like the basis for a lot of these sort of like sounds at the time. My personal highlight was Mary Clayton's backing vocals on the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter. Because I love that song. It's one of like my all-time favourite songs. Veterans of the podcast will know that the Rolling Stones was just one of my, probably my favourite band growing up. And it's such a textured and weird song that is made by the backing vocals. I think everyone would agree that song is just completely made by the backing vocals and hearing how that came about is really it's just a lovely anecdote where mary was sort of woken up in the middle of the night in her silk pajamas and her headscarf and her hair in curlers and like was rushed down to the studio and she says she did one take and then they were like okay we'll just do one more and she was like yeah we're gonna do one more and i'm gonna like blow you out of the room and just like went for it and obviously that now that's such an iconic yeah moment in music and they were all such brilliant 
characters. They were so aware of their own talent in a way that I just found really refreshing and like amazing. Like none of them were like, yeah, maybe I just didn't make the big time because I wasn't good enough. They were like, we were better. We were better than everyone else. And like the system was fucked or I wasn't good at the business side of it. Like there was really specific reasons why. And most of them were structural. I mean, Darlene Love, for instance, gets trapped in this contract with Phil Spector famous producer and then when she finally gets out of it and signs a contract with someone else they sell her contract straight back to Phil Spector and she has no power over it and then in other cases you know they they do have solo records like you know one of them wins a Grammy like you see her win a Grammy and then it just doesn't really Mm. go anywhere and Mm they were like yeah so I made that record and people said they liked it but it didn't really sell and Mm. I had to take more backing vocal gigs because I needed money and I really like it and the other thing I really found interesting was the way they explored the fact that some people don't want the stardom. So the title of the documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom, contains in it this idea of kind of longing to be the star. Mm. But actually, maybe some people are incredibly talented at being 20 feet from stardom. They have the ability to blend amazingly, to find the hidden harmonies in the song that really bring it alive. And that's what they want to do. Yeah. In the same way that some people want to be directors, not actors. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah, so there's one vocalist in particular called Lisa who's very good at sort of exploring why she actually would prefer not to be at the forefront. And then this this uh, another one Tata just, Vega. Yeah, Tata Vega says, Oh, if if I had made it and I had become really famous, to be honest, I probably wouldn't be sat here talking to you now because I probably would have OD'd which is like a really stark thing yeah. to say. And, you know, the wheels start turning and you're like, actually, that's not a crazy thing to say when you start looking at who was a big star at the time and how a lot of these you yeah. know, narratives and What up. happened to Janis Joplin, say, you know, yeah. exactly. It's, it's, you know, it's obviously a tough, really, really tough thing to be in the spotlight like that. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I thought I found the content of the documentary more interesting than the, like, format of the documentary. Yeah. It's a very, like, traditional documentary in that sense. It's like talking heads, bit of voiceover, some clips. What I did like was occasionally they did break out of that format and they had, like, a clearly a new performance. Mm-hmm. So they had like a close-up of like Lisa Fisher singing a song. It was really interesting to see that contrast with like her opening for the Rolling Stones 10 years before you know that was that was interesting and there were a few bits where they had Darlene Love going back into the studio where she'd worked 40 years before and stuff like that so I did like Mm. the kind of new original stuff that they filmed for the documentary yeah and that scene with her reuniting with the Blossoms and they were like oh that was perfect we didn't even rehearse you know (laughs) it's really great just something I knew nothing about and really interesting to like get that sense of the history of it so I have to actually thank the Death, Sex and Money podcast for pointing me towards that film in the oh, first yeah. place. I will find the episode and link to it. It was one of their really early episodes. They interviewed Lisa Fisher. Cool. On that episode, she talked particularly about money, and which she doesn't really go into so much mm. in the film. Which... She like mentions that, oh yeah, I kept taking these jobs because I had to pay my bills. Yeah, so what she talks about in the podcast is that she still sort of lives hand to mouth, in the, right. even though she tours every year with the Rolling Stones and obviously is paid very well for her time she's never been able to save because Mm. of the lifestyle she leads yeah presumably it's inconsistent yeah she doesn't know whether there'll be a tour next year etc etc you know so yeah i will link to that in the show notes because i highly recommend that as an accompaniment to the film well thank you so much for that recommendation i really enjoyed it for next week i thought that i would recommend to you the secret in their eyes which is an argentine crime thriller film so it has been remade but this is the original spanish language one that i think you'll enjoy so el secreto de sus ojos 
I don't know. (laughs) So it's produced and edited by Juan Jose Campanella, and it's based on a novel, and the screenplay was written by the author of that novel. Remember when we were talking about Zodiac, and I was like, I'm constantly in pursuit of another film like Zodiac, because I loved it so much. This is kind of that. I have to thank my boyfriend for actually being the one to suggest this as as a new Zodiac for me. It's like quite weird. It jumps about in time. But it's, and also it's like fairly confusing in terms of I couldn't really understand the Argentine crime system because they seemed to be both lawyers and police. I found it very confusing. (laughs) Um, But basically, so the lead character, he's a retired judiciary employee and he is writing a novel about a case that never left him. Uh, I'm seeing the parallels with Zodiac already. Yeah. (laughs) And he starts to try and track down the people who were involved in the case at the time because there's something that just still doesn't sit right with him about it. Mm. And it's just really, really good, really plot driven, but really sort of like weird. And there's lots of sort of like metaphors and lots of looking at photographs and, you know, but I think you'll really like it. Okay, I'll give it a go. Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Seriously. All you have to do is search SRSLY in iTunes or any other podcasting app you use. While you're there, it would be really great if you could leave us an iTunes review as it helps other people find the show. We also rely on you listeners for your recommendations. So if you want to tell us what you thought about something or if you've got something we should watch, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, via email. All the details are on seriouslypodcast.com. If you like, you can also recommend us to your friends, family, neighbours, strangers. Let them know that you like the podcast and that they should be listening to it too. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.